Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Carl Norman. A big part of following those rules was going in the ministry door to door. I'm sorry. <laughs> that and more. Also, Adam and Eve says the best part of staying at home is playing at home. Take advantage of the downtime and choose almost any one item at 50% off. When you do, you'll get 10 free boredom-busting gifts, including six spicy movies, a three-piece bonus kit, and free shipping delivered right to your door. Remember, the offer code is RISK. That's RISK at the checkout. Adam and Eve has thousands of products to make you glad you're staying at home. Uh, sex toys make being at home enjoyable. Hell, even shopping from home is more enjoyable when you're shopping for sex toys. So go to adamandeve.com and use that offer code RISK. But before that, you know, the year 2020 shows up a lot in science fiction. A lot of people predicted by now we'd be uh, teleporting to work or living on Mars. A lot of those predictions were wrong. The truth is we'll always be getting the future wrong, which is why we need to get life insurance right. That's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. So, if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fa fact, fact, <laughs> don't get discouraged. <laughs> get Life insurance. It takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong. Better get life insurance right. Wait, I meant wheel. Wheel always <laughs> get the future wrong. The, so listen, I have been to the Policy Genius site and taken a tour of it, and what they offer really is remarkable. The ease, the sheer range of options. Like I, they can't express it all in their ad copy here. There, there's also home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance, pet insurance. Definitely check it out. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. Oh, fuck. Who is this behind me now? Uh, I'm going to have to stop the recording and find out. It's the Juju Orchestra. And they use all sorts of little samples of Cannonball Adderley talking throughout it, which I love. Well, while I am recording the podcast this evening, you might very well be watching the Super Bowl, and that might make you think, oh, that's so sad. Kevin's home alone. 
working instead of watching the Super Bowl. But no, no, no. I'm very happy to be doing what I love <laughs> instead of that. I spent the first 18 years of my life in Ohio pretending I liked the Super Bowl, pretending I cared or, or knew what was going on. It's been so uh, relieving in my adult life to be able to be like, yeah, no, I, I have, I'm not going to pay attention to any of that. <laughs> But you might think, oh, but as a gay man, you must watch all the award shows. No, I don't watch those either. You know, I'm turning 50 this month, and it's just so nice to be continually, like month by month, year by year, leaning in to doing whatever the fuck I want <laughs> and not being worried about what everyone else does. Now, we're calling this week's episode Transitions. I mean, this is, you know, this is a transitional year for us all. You know, me turning 50, the podcast going into our next 10 years, the 2020 elections, the impeachment trial, which this week will be basically kind of a... The Republican Party putting a rubber stamp on the whole idea of the rule of law being no longer a legitimate thing and you know like we're pretty much rubber stamping the idea of going on to a sort of dictatorship level of operations here you know there's the very famous benjamin franklin quote uh, a republic if you can keep it well i feel like we've lost it now it's not a matter of saving it it's a matter of now is 2020 the year we start recreating a republic so let's do that let's do it folks i i, I will say vote blue no matter who and i don't give a flying fuck who is offended by my saying that <laughs> oh boy i'm in a mood tonight am i not now in a little bit we're going to hear a story from Carl Norman. You can find him at Carl with a K and an E at the end, underscore Norman on Instagram. Now, Carl has shared a, a story on the show before and fairly recently, I think. But this one was recorded in one of my favorite cities, the great town of Toronto. But before that, we're going to feature one of the stories that was included in the Risk book, but that had never run on the podcast before. Remember, when we came out with the Risk book, we said that there's six stories in the book that have never run on the podcast before. This was recorded at the Speak Up, Rise Up Festival in New York City. It's a festival of storytelling shows and other sorts of performances for social justice. For the show, we were challenged to keep the stories eight minutes or less, and I think that the job that Ames Beckerman did, packing so much narrative into eight minutes, is really extraordinary. You can find Ames on Instagram, at Ames Beckerman, and here he is now, with a story we call, Like Mother, Like Me.
I was 30 years old. I'm 33 now, so this is three years ago. I've always had a really complicated and uncomfortable relationship with my body. Another thing is I am a nervous person, also anxious, self-conscious, and often manic and paranoid. My mom, Randy, is my best friend. She's also a nervous person, anxious person, paranoid, often manic, all those things. Basically, we're the same person. I just spent 30 years mirroring a comedic impression of my mother at all times. I gave in to her shopping addiction, her love of a good coach bag. We would hide shopping bags in the car while my dad was home, and then when he would go to work, we would bring them in the house so we wouldn't find them. We did everything together. We were like Russian dolls, except I was a drag queen and she had no idea. So here's the thing, it's really complicated because I loved doing feminine things. I loved going to get a pedicure and sitting in the next chair and chatting with her about everything that was happening. And the thought of watching the game with my father and his friends sounded like the worst idea for a Sunday. But I just wasn't in love with being a woman. I did all the girly things. I would get my acrylic nails filled every week. I would shop at Lane Bryant. I did everything you can think of that's feminine. Then in the attempt to feel comfortable with my body, I got into this habit of excusing myself after every meal and sticking my fingers down my throat so I could be okay with my body. And then in another attempt, I had weight loss surgery. So I lost 100 pounds. I still wasn't comfortable as a woman. I did it all. I just was not comfortable. And then I had this great idea because I didn't know, I wasn't sure why I felt the way I did. I decided, okay, I'm a lesbian. So I just spent all the nights listening to CDs of Melissa Etheridge and Tracy Chapman (laughs) while eating fistfuls of pussy. (laughs) And then I married a woman and I got to go to David's bridal with my family, try on all the dresses. And at the end, when you find your perfect dress, you ring a bell and you're like, yes, I'm a woman, I did it all. I just couldn't do it anymore. There was one point where I just was like, I'm done. I can't do this. I need to transition. I just didn't know what to do. I'm like, my mom, my mom, like I know she's not gonna disown me, but what is she gonna do with a son? Never mind just a son, a trans son. My mom was living in Florida. She was taking care of my grandmother who was dying of cancer. And here I am in New York City. I'm growing out my leg hair, my armpit hair, worshiping the six chin hairs I have, and then hoping I wake up the next morning with six more. And I'm binding my chest. If no one knows what that is, it's when you wear this compression garment that's itchy and sweaty and really tight around your tits so they disappear momentarily. And here my mom is in Florida. She has no idea what's going on, and there's no good time to tell her. I couldn't do it much longer. So February 16th, 2015, she calls me. Amy, I think she's dead. Grandma's dead. She's not moving. I'm like, okay, so she's probably dead. Um, She's like, okay, Cookie, I, I gotta go. I'll call you back. She used to call me Cookie. She calls me back 10 minutes later. Amy, uh, this, this, 
people, these people are here, central holding. They're, they're taking her body out. And they're, and they're such dicks. Like, you would think they would be nice to me because my mother's dead. Ugh, I'll see you in Boston. Bye, cookie. So as soon as I get the news of this, I jump on the megabus to Boston. And I meet my mother at the Holiday Inn in Dedham, Massachusetts, where I was going to stay with her for a few days for the funeral. Um, and the trip was rough because I couldn't really come out to her, but then at the same time, I couldn't bind my chest because then she was going to know and I was going to feel shitty about myself. So there was just a lot of emotions that were happening to me at one time. And I get there, I meet my mother, and she's grief-stricken and manic. She's just, like, crazy. I mean, she's yelling about bagels you know she's like i we're gonna have we're gonna have the shiva we don't think i don't think we have enough bagels amy call the deli order a dozen more like just yelling and yelling and then she goes to the bed and she's laying down and crying so finally the next morning was the funeral and what we would normally do before a family event is we would be together in the bathroom getting ready and and chatting and this time was different she was putting on her makeup in the bathroom and I was standing outside the bathroom ironing a crappy dress shirt that I bought. And she just kept looking at me and going back to her makeup. And finally, she looks at me and she says, why are you so masculine? I don't know even what got into me. It's like I had verbal diarrhea. Like my mouth just like shit everywhere. And I just stopped and I looked at her and I said, mom, when I go back to New York City... I'm changing my name from Amy to Ames. I'm going on testosterone. And I'm going to have top surgery to remove my breasts. She didn't believe me. She's like, you know, can't you just be a tomboy? Look at me. I have short hair. You can just be a tomboy. And then she would go back to doing her makeup. And then she'd come out of the bathroom again. I felt awful about this. And then she finally looks at me and she's like... You're going to be so hairy. You're going to have so much chest hair. You're going to be like a gorilla like your father. And I was like, I hope so. That's all I want. (laughs) So we go to the funeral and we went there. It was quiet. The whole ride was quiet. And I sat behind her and she sobbed the entire time. And I knew that she was mourning two losses, the loss of her mother and also the loss of her daughter. After the funeral, she comes to New York City with me for a few days just to get away. Um, We just hung out, did the things we normally did. I forced her to watch the first season of Transparent with me. I introduced her to some of my trans friends, got takeout. She had a lot of questions that I wasn't able to answer. She wasn't sure if it was her fault or if she did something or if there's something she could have done to prevent this. And I told her no. And then she said to me, she's like, were you lying? Is this something, did you not like getting your nails done with me? Did you not like doing all of the time we spent together? And I said, mom, of course I enjoyed that. And I'm going to continue to enjoy that. What do you think? I'm a flamboyant gay man. (laughs) So I chose to involve my mother in my transition. I included her in every aspect. I informed her about all the medical changes that would happen on testosterone. When I had top surgery, I went to Florida and she took care of me. I gave her a break with the pronoun. I knew that over time she would understand what the male pronouns were and she would forget once in a while 
to call me Ames and she would call me Amy and she would, you know, it, I, I, was, I was really relaxed with her because I wanted her to understand the process. And while I was recovering from top surgery in Florida after a few days of recovery, we went to the mall and instead of going into the women's section shopping, she went with me into the men's section and she helped me pick out some shirts for my newly flat chest. We did the same stuff. I was just her gay son now. It was a transition for both of us. Thanks. When I have a brand new hairdo With my eyelashes all in curl I float as the clouds on hairdo Flamboyant gay man. When men say I'm cute and funny, and my teeth aren't teeth but pearl, I just flap it up like honey. I enjoy being a flamboyant gay man. I flip when the fella sends me flowers. I drool over dresses made of lace. I talk on the telephone for hours With a pound and a half of cream upon my face I'm strictly a flamboyant gay man And my future, I hope, will be In the home of a brave and a free male Who'll enjoy being a guy Having a flamboyant gay man So I'm six years old, and all I can see is bodies for miles. Bloody, disgusting, filthy corpses being pecked at by crows. Cities in the background being destroyed by lightning, sulfur, fire coming down from God. And this is all in the book that my parents gave me. Revelation, its grand climax is at hand. (laughs) It's Tuesday night, it's book study night. It's not all bad, though. There's pictures of paradise, too. People sitting in a park, eating their lunch, surrounded by lions and pandas. (laughs) Don't you want to be there, Carl? My mom says to me. Don't you want to get to know Noah and Moses and Aaron and ask them what their life was like when they wrote the books of the Bible and when they were in Bible times? Yeah, Mom, I do. But to get there there are some very specific rules you have to follow. My family was Jehovah's Witnesses, and I was raised this way. And a big part of following those rules was going in the ministry door to door. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry about all of your Saturdays. (laughs) And when you do this from the time you're a little kid, you get the confidence to walk up to a stranger's door and say, would you like to know something about the Bible? I think you do. Even when someone is leveling a shotgun at your father's chest. All that did to me was let me know I was even more right. That I was part of the group of people who was doing God's work. 
who was doing the only thing in the world that mattered. No, thank you. I'm trying to sleep. So the kind of things we'd hear yelled at us. And by the time I was eight, you got the sense of when it was going to be bad. And this is one of those times. I saw the curtains move, you know, and kind of perfect lawn, pansies all in a row, well manicured. And this woman, I don't even think we knocked, with my father, and she comes out and says, oh, no. You lie to your kids, and you're going to bring them around my neighborhood and tell me how to live my life? Absolutely not. So my father is very polite. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am. We didn't mean to bother you. We just wanted to share an encouraging thought from the Bible. And eight-year-old me pipes up and says, every kid in my class believes in Santa Claus, and I don't. I know that's not the truth. So who lies to their children? Mm. (laughs) It's very, very zealous eight-year-old, guys. (laughs) I knew I had the best community that there ever existed on the planet, and I knew that I was part of a worldwide brotherhood. Whether it was cleaning the kingdom hall, that's what Jehovah's Witness Church is called, on Sundays in our socks with my friends, or whether it was uh, a time later in life I was in Germany, I lost my passport, and an older couple from the congregation drove me and my brother to the American consulate at 6.30 in the morning to make sure we got our flight home. It was a worldwide brotherhood. I knew I was in the right place. And later, after my father died, people would say, don't you want to be there, Carl? He's going to be so proud of you. When you see him in paradise, he's going to come up and hug you, and it's going to be great. So I did want to be there. And that community felt so real. You're raised in it. So... I grow up, I go to massage school somehow. (laughs) And it's a miracle no one nipped that in the bud. Um, No one said, oh yeah, you should totally go rub naked people for a living. It's a great idea. So I'm in massage school, I'm 18. I met the first gay man I ever knew. I met the first person with dreadlocks, white chick in her 20s. (laughs) Massage school, not lawyer school, everybody. I would smoke cloves, and I would drive around listening to Postal Service with my friends, and I uh, used my brother's ID to get in bars that I shouldn't have been in, and I loved it. I loved the freedom that all these people had. I loved their stories, and I loved getting the experience from them that I never had. So I almost left. I almost left being one of Jehovah's Witnesses at that point. But the kindness and the love that my family showed me and that I saw in the congregation kept me in. I couldn't leave. So I'm a massage therapist, and that's when I meet Marilyn. She walks in. She's six-something, taller than me, very muscular, and she becomes my weekly client. And we talk every massage. And she talks about her life, living with her father on a sailboat, going around the world, going to Greece to paint with art school. And she just has this fantastic life. Oh, and I also, she loves pressure. Table to the ground, I'm not weak. I'm short, but I'm not weak. And I'm putting my full pressure on this woman's legs and arms and back, and she enjoys it. Even puts her to sleep. I'm like, what? So um, I'm giving her a massage. I'm working in her home eventually. I see her so often that she's like, can you ditch this spa and come to my home? And one time I'm working on her feet. She's laying on her back, and she says, you know, Carl, before you turn me over onto my stomach, you're going to notice some star-shaped marks on my back. I don't want you to worry. No one's hurting me. But if you want to know what they are, great. If you don't, 
That's fine too. So I'm thinking, I have never seen star-shaped marks. I don't know what causes star-shaped marks. What the fuck? And what I say is, oh, yeah, cool. You should totally tell me. Um, so she goes to her, this was her first kink party in years. She tells me that she just re-entered the kink community after years and years of being out. And um, again, oh, good, good. Good for you. That's really neat. Um, and, and I say, did it hurt? And she goes, oh, yeah, it hurt. And by this point, she's flipped over, and I see these symmetrical deep welts, and all I can think about is the arm and the shoulder that's attached to this flogger with the star-shaped end that made these deep, dark marks in her back. And thinking, wow, good for you. I, no, thank you. <laughs> um, so I ask, did it hurt? And she goes, yeah, the pleasure's in the pain. Of course. So I eventually... Um, she hires me to work in her home to help around the house, do cook, uh, do laundry, do dishes, not like that. <laughs> and um, she starts having parties with kink, but I'm never at them. She's always super conscious of my comfort level. And um, she always asks me, you know, I, I'd like you to prepare and then go. So the first time I see her in her kink stuff, I'm about to leave, and she comes down the stairs, remember, six feet, eight-inch heels, uh, fishnets, short skirt, big fake eyelashes, and I'm just maleficent makeup. And I've never seen anything. Jehovah's Witness, guys. I've never seen anything <laughs> like this in my entire life. And she comes down, and she's like, pure sex. And this is the woman who I help her kids with her homework, I cook. It doesn't register that this is the same person. So she tells me that she wants to throw a femdom high tea party. I don't know what that is. So I find out and destroy my Google history. <laughs> and and um, my education begins. I, I learn the protocols for subs and doms. I learn how to make things for a high tea party. So that, there's a whole other aspect of it. And I find myself in my first, the night of the party, I'm in my first non-rented tuxedo. She bought me a tux. Asked me to come serve at the party and says, okay, what are you comfortable with? And I go, oh, God, just please. I don't want to see anything that you'd see in a porno. And I said porno. <laughs> so I made cucumber sandwiches and there's lavender scones. <laughs> clotted cream. I learned how to make 10 different kinds of tea. In a tuxedo, and the doorbell rings, and I go, here we go. This is it. And what I expected to see was a cartoon. I expected to see everyone come at once, like in full leather harnesses and with whips and chains ready to go. But then, you know, it's kind of stupid now to think about. Imagine going to the gas station, just like... <laughs> a little candy bar. Unzip your mask. So how it actually was, the first couple comes to the door, and they're dressed in regular clothing very nicely dressed. They look like they have wealth, nice earrings, watches. Hi, how are you? Good evening. I'm Mr. Black. I forgot to tell you that I had a fake name to protect my Jehovah's Witness identity. <laughs> so they're dressed very nicely and they have bags. There's so much luggage with every single person that comes to this party. And if I could have looked in those bags, I'm sure I would have been aghast. Um, so I'm in the kitchen, I'm preparing tea, and I had a very nice conversation with this couple, and there's a grand central staircase in the home, and I'm in the kitchen working, 
and they start coming down the stairs, except she is in a full leather bodysuit, makeup ferocious, and he has a leather collar on and a ball gag and a complete baroque gown. (laughs) Head to toe. And all I can think of are the faces of the people in my congregation. (laughs) Oh my God, what would they say? Because I could get in huge trouble for that, for being there, for even just, and I didn't see anything, I didn't participate, but just being there is enough to get me in trouble. So this is the first time I was exposed to a zipper mask. Once everyone starts coming down uh, out of their rooms and changed, um, this couple, we'll call them Curtis and Dylan, I had been talking to them about their recent wedding, and they were talking about the flowers that they picked out and the beautiful roses they had and how great their party was. And then I saw all the loving care there in these men. And I saw the same loving care when Curtis forced Dylan to his knees and had his tea served off of him. And that same sparkle was there in his eyes. (laughs) We could see it through the eye holes. So there I am. And everyone, everyone's like, so what's his story? What's Mr. Black's story? Marilyn goes, he's kink-friendly, don't worry. And she was so kind. She checked in with me all night and said, are you comfortable? Are you doing okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, so toward the end of the party, she just comes and taps me on the shoulder and says, I think it's time for you to go. <laughs> and this is as all the subs were getting their hands zip-tied behind their backs, shirtless, ready to find all the thorned roses that were hidden all over the house with their mouths and that night my worldview completely expanded it was like I had spent 30 years in a living room and then found out that outside of that there was a yard and outside of that was a neighborhood and beyond that was a whole town this exploded my view of what life was like and to see people in the kink community that I knew being good fathers good mothers good citizens and still engaging in the thing that I was told would get them to be a bloody corpse at Armageddon was a big deal. So I'm no longer one of Jehovah's Witnesses, and that comes with penalties. Uh, I'm disfellowshipped, which means that everyone who's an active witness no longer speaks to you, and that includes my family, friends, everyone I've ever known. That whole community is conditional. Um, A few weeks ago, my mom will watch my daughters because they were never baptized and they're young. So my mom will occasionally see my kids. And she called me and said, I'm in severe pain. Can you come get the girls? So I bring the girls inside. I go and talk to her. I'm like, let me take you to the emergency room. And she says, no, no, thank you. I'd prefer it if someone from the kingdom hall took me. Don't be offended. So I'm finding my way in a world that does not include an Armageddon. There's no paradise. I'm in love with a wonderful worldly woman. And it's all because of a BDSM tea party.
make it lasting, make it faithful. Cause the healed by voices in the gloaming, in the echo, not the heal, close beside me, but far from me, laughing lonely. This is Risk. This is his golden messenger behind me now. And we just heard from Carl Norman, a story he shared in Toronto. It's interesting because Carl shared another story about being in the Jehovah's Witnesses and leaving it recently on the podcast, but with completely different story events. I always tell people, you can take a narrative idea like, why I left the Jehovah's Witnesses and come up with one set of incidences, but then start poking and asking questions and thinking of other contexts and other memories and then find, well, you know, there are several incidences throughout my life that actually add up to that. So perfect example of that. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. That is the, the song, the, the original Broadway recording of uh, I Enjoy Being a Girl. Uh, I love thinking of Oscar Hammerstein, of Rodgers and Hammerstein, in the closet and writing the lyrics to that song. And I love remembering how much I loved that song when I was like in the seventh grade. <laughs> now, folks, I've been telling you that I'm about to be making a big, big, big announcement about the one-on-one -on -one coaching that I'm going to be offering online. And indeed, that announcement is coming. Uh, but until then, you can just go to kevinallison.com and find out all about that coaching there. Coaching for storytelling, coaching for storytelling for business, or presentations or public speaking, and also just one-on-one -on -one mentoring about creativity or sex and kink or producing shows and podcasts. So again, go to kevinallison.com, look at the coaching part of the site, and all you need to know is there. Okay, so postage rates have gone up again. Thankfully, Stamps.com eases the pain with big discounts off post office retail rates. With Stamps.com, you save five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off shipping rates. That kind of savings really adds up. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, even a warehouse sending thousands of packages. Stamps.com can handle it with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Stamps.com not only saves you time, it saves you money. 
you get discounted postage rates that you can't get at the post office. It's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. There's no equipment to lease. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk now our final story on this week's episode was recorded many months ago at our los angeles show and the storyteller is lisa x i have to say that there is child sexual abuse in this story one of the shocks of my life has been doing this show over the past now over 10 years and hearing so many of these stories becoming aware of how common tragically common these stories are but we are deeply grateful to those who share them here is lisa x now at the Risk Live show in L.A. with a story we call Consent is Mine to Give. born in Africa. Growing up, my father was the stereotypical patriarch. He went to work, he made the money, he paid the bills, and he was never to be questioned at any time. My mother was your quote-unquote African woman. She was meant to be seen and not heard. She belonged in the kitchen, and she raised my three sisters and I to be good African girls. In my culture, it's believed that it takes a village to raise a child. So growing up, I was handled by many people. When we went to school, our teachers had permission from my parents to discipline us. And when we were going home from school, if any of our family members or any friends or family friends saw us going home and we were doing something that was out of line, they also had permission to discipline us. In 2002, we moved to the United States, and with us, we brought this culture of respecting elders and being conservative and things being morally just. And this was a hard transition for my parents. Because we were conservative, we didn't talk about very many things. Uh, things like sex were a mystery to me. I didn't really know much about sex. When I was 11 years old, my older sister got pregnant, and I didn't understand why my parents were so angry. At that time, my mind wasn't able to compute the fact that in order for someone to get pregnant, they had to have had sex first. Now, over time, I definitely learned about sex through popular music and black erotica that my friends would give me. <laughs> and so, growing up, I was the opposite of that, you know, you're meant to be seen and not heard African girl. I was loud, I was enthusiastic. You can hear me coming from a mile away. But the funny thing about that is I also had very low self-esteem. I thought I was the ugliest thing walking. I would look in the mirror and I would say, 
why is your nose so big? Why are your eyes so small? Why are you so dark? And for me, I already felt different because I thought I was so ugly, but I was also African, so I was different from everyone else, but I also wanted to fit in. So I would do whatever it took for me to fit in. Some of the things I would do was I would try to tie my hair and these extravagant ponytails to to make my hair look longer. Because in the black community, if your hair is longer, you're more attractive. And so I would try to tie my hair in these big extravagant ponytails and I would gel or slick gel my baby hairs to the side so my hair can look like it's wavy because that's considered more attractive. Um, Do you guys remember puff paint? Do you guys know what that is? (laughs) So we used to take puff paint um, and because, you know, my family was poor, I was able to afford like a dollar fifty bottle of puff paint and we would write on our pants. And so I would write things like, Lisa is juice to the max or like (laughs) something to the max. And, you know, we would put these on these like ombre pants that we would wear. So like the top would be like hot pink and the bottom would be like lighter pink. And I thought I was hot shit. (laughs) And And um, another thing was, there was a time where they came out with these shoes called 350s. I don't know if you guys remember that. And so, you remember, I saw you. (laughs) So, you know, because they were $3.50, we were able to afford them. And I'm pretty sure I got like two pairs of those shoes. Um, So needless to say, you know, growing up was kind of different for me, right? So when I was 14 years old, a family friend of ours introduced us to Uncle Neil. Uncle Neil was a 67-year-old events DJ, and he was very successful at his job. I mean, he had a gold BMW, he had a gold Mercedes, he had a gold Lexus, all gold, everything. Um, And around this time, my father wasn't around. He was going back and forth from Africa. So we had another income that was missing, and my mother was raising us. And so my uncle stepped in, and he would pick me up from school, and he would take me to go get food to eat. And uh, my favorite thing was he would take me to Imperial Fish Market, and I was able to pick whatever fish I wanted, and they would fry it right there on the spot. And, you know, for me, growing up in poverty, him doing these things, they were a form of luxury for me. You know, he was a reminder of that village and respecting elders. He started asking me questions. He would say, have you kissed a boy? Or if we drove past a boy that looked like he was my age, he would ask me, would you kiss that boy? To which I would respond with, no. And then he started giving me compliments. He would say, I like those shorts that you're wearing. He would say, you look very nice today. You're getting bigger. And at the time, I relished in these compliments because I wasn't getting those compliments from anyone else, let alone someone my age. And one day, we were driving in his car, and I remember complaining about Christmas and how, you know, my mother, she was, you know, single mother, raising us by herself, and how we weren't going to have Christmas. And he looked at me, and he said, I can give you the money. I will give you $2,000 to be with me. And instinctively, I knew what he meant. I looked out the window, and I thought about it. You see, he was offering me $2,000, and for a 14-year-old, that was a lot of money. I just remember thinking, well, that's a lot of money that I can spend to buy my entire family Christmas gifts. 
my little sisters can wake up on Christmas and they can be happy. And my mother doesn't have to have that look of shame in her eyes when she sees the look of disappointment in our eyes because we didn't have any gifts for Christmas. So I agreed. And at the time, it was $2,000. It was an easy decision for me to make. So we made the plan. He picked me up on a Saturday morning, and he took me to a storage unit. When we walked into the storage unit, I remember seeing his DJ equipment. There were records and CDs, there was tagging on the wall, and in the middle of the storage unit was a bed. I remember thinking, that's a weird place to have a bed. You know, when I look back at it now, I realize that that's where his perverted mind thought to take me when he decided to do this. He told me to take my underwear off and get on the bed. I was wearing a dress that day, so it was pretty easy for me to take my underwear off. I got undressed and I laid on the bed. He started taking his clothes off and he climbed on the bed and he got on top of me. At this point, I looked away and he put his penis inside of me. And I just remember thinking, this is so wrong. This is disgusting. And I just checked out mentally and physically. And then it was over. And I remember it hitting me. I just lost my virginity. He got off of me and he threw a towel at me and he said, wipe yourself up because he came inside of me. And at 14 years old, I didn't know what that meant. We got back in the car, and he gave me the $2,000. And he proceeded to take me to a mall, where I spent every single dollar on Christmas gifts for my family, except for myself, because I didn't want anything to do with that money. He dropped me off at home, and I told my mom that Uncle Neil brought us Christmas. And I took a very long shower after that, and I just kept trying to scrub and wash the disgust and the shame that I was feeling on the inside. And it didn't really click to me what had happened. But what I did remember was thinking, I just lost my virginity. This happened four more times. And each time that it happened, the money that he was giving me kept getting lower and lower. And I remember thinking, I feel like I'm selling myself. And that guilt started to get heavier and heavier in this thing that I was participating in. And at the time, that was the way my 14-year-old mind could compartmentalize this thing that was happening to me. And so I stopped. And I stopped because it felt wrong. Intellectually, I didn't know why it felt wrong. I didn't have the knowledge at the time to put those kinds of thoughts together. And I didn't have any words for it. And for years, I would blame myself for this thing that happened, this thing that I participated in. And I would get into these fits of depression and rage. Four years later, when I was in college, I was having one of these 
fits of depression and just rage and anger. And I was in the shower and I was scratching and I was scrubbing and I was punching the wall. And a friend of mine came into the bathroom and she realized that it was me and she asked me what was going on. I just broke down. You know, this is the first time that I've ever decided to tell someone what happened. And I proceeded to tell her what happened, detail for detail, and I was numb, I didn't cry. I just told her, this is what happened. And she looked at me and she said, you were raped. And I remember thinking, rape? What do you mean I was raped? And she said, you were raped. You were 14 years old and he was 67. You had no idea what was going on. You didn't have any consent at that age. He took advantage of your naivete and he raped you. I just remember the sense of shame and disgust and feeling unworthy just lifting off of me all these years that I carried this shame that I didn't participate you know that shame that I was having was because I thought that I gave him my virginity for money but when I honestly look at what happened the problem with that logic is that my virginity wasn't offered to him at 14 years old, I didn't have the knowledge to make a decision like that. I didn't give him my virginity because he took it. Thank you. Bag lady, you gon' hurt your back. Dragon. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Erica Badu behind me now, and we just heard from Lisa X. Now, that was recorded at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. And if you want to see Risk Live, information about where we're appearing next is always at risk-show.com slash tour. There are so many ways to get involved or follow us. We have a subreddit, Risk Podcast. 
We have a discussion group on Facebook called the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Facebook at Risk Show. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Kevin Allison. You can find a whole slew of storytelling education opportunities, in-person workshops, online workshops, video workshops that you can take in your own time and pace at thestorystudio.org. We also do a lot of corporate workshops through thestorystudio.org. We've had clients like Google and Pfizer and Citibank and American Express and more. And as you know, we rely so heavily on word of mouth. If you know someone who's not into podcasts, tell them to go get The Risk Book. Anywhere books are sold or at Amazon.com, The Risk Book is a great introduction to what we do. Or just share your favorite stories with friends and family, you know, in the car ride or whatever. Go straight to your favorite story on any given episode and Tell them how to download or stream the show. I'm sure there are five other things I'm forgetting to say right now that the staff will yell at me for not having said this week. (laughs) But I'm just going to skip right ahead to, folks, today's the day. (laughs) Take a risk. Whoa, that sounded sexy. I guess this week is the sexy one. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. So, if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fat, 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 science fat, 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 science fat, 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 science fat, 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 science fat, fat, fat. Science fat 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 Science fat 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 Science fat fat